This is the Cote St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service. It is Friday, May 8, 2020. And on today's episode, we have Lockdown Viewing. This is where Stephen Tomlinson, our movie librarian, discusses uh, movies and TV that you can watch at home. Stephen has a lot of recommendations in today's episode, including Jerry Seinfeld's new Netflix special. Also on Netflix this month is um, Jerry Seinfeld, who's back with his brand new stand-up comedy special, 23 Hours to Kill. Jennifer Eisman will speak about uh, some books that she's read recently and that she recommends. It is the weekend of her wedding, and she meets an elderly woman named Edith Heron. While they only have a few brief conversations, they provide Claire with the insight and courage she so badly needs to call off her wedding and return home. Our music librarian, Farah Mohammed, will be speaking about Mother's Day, giving some background and playing some nice music. There have been many traditional celebrations of mothers and motherhood that have existed throughout the world over thousands of years, such as the Greek cult out to Cybele, an Anatolian mother goddess, or Rhea, who was the Magna Mater, or Great Mother of the Gods. And as always, we end the show with Corona Serenades. These are local artists and musicians who uh, sing. And today we're going to be hearing from uh, Catherine Frady. So that is today's show. And here is Stephen Tomlinson. Hello, everyone. How are you? Hope you're well, you and yours, friends and family. Hope you're all happy, safe, and healthy. It's Coast St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson here with another episode of Lockdown Viewing, where I'll be providing recommendations for movies, television, and internet viewing content. Let's begin with Netflix. What's new or returning on Netflix this month? Well, for one, Becoming, which is the brand new Polished and Pleasant documentary portrait of Michelle Obama, filmed during the former First Lady's book tour for her 2018 memoir of the same title. While we do see her at her childhood home in Chicago, this is mostly comprised of interviews with her conducted by such fellow celebrities as Oprah Winfrey, Conan O'Brien, Gail King, and Stephen Colbert, always in front of adoring crowds. Although there are few, if any, great revelations to be had, Michelle Obama is such a gifted and natural storyteller that I don't think it really matters. Not when you're so witty and charismatic as she is, and able to punctuate anecdotes with perfect pause for applause, comic timing. Of her first date with future President Barack Obama, she recalls, he was late, but other than archival footage, the former American president only appears very briefly in Becoming, as do the couple's daughters, Sasha and Malia. Generally, Michelle Obama comes across, as I think she always has, commanding but approachable, thoughtful but funny, sincere but a little guarded. And after spending eight years in the White House glare, that guardedness is, I would think, very understandable. That's the Michelle Obama documentary, Becoming, now streaming on Netflix. Also on Netflix this month is um, Jerry Seinfeld, who's back with his brand new stand-up comedy special, 23 Hours to Kill. 23 Hours to Kill because the special itself is one hour long. One hour of carefully crafted bits and greatest hits, you might say, from his past 22 years of touring and filmed last fall at the Beacon Theater in New York City, where the now 66-year-old comedian um, had performed a monthly residency for most of the past four years. In fact, only halted this spring by the coronavirus pandemic. So what is 23 Hours to Kill? If you know Jerry Seinfeld's work, you probably know what to expect. It's classic Jerry. You know what you're getting. With him ripping on everything from marriage to iPhones to golf. But the thing is, you're guaranteed at least a few laughs out of it. So 
Go for it. That's Jerry Seinfeld's 23 Hours to Kill this month on Netflix. Uncut Gems. Have you heard of it? It's one of the most critically acclaimed movies of the last year. And finally available to stream on Netflix. This Safdie Brothers movie is part psychological thriller, part dark comedy, and part dysfunctional extended family drama, which stars a frantic but sensational Adam Sandler as Howard Ratner, a jeweler and gambling addict who desperately hopes to pay off his debts with the sale of an expensive gem. But when NBA player Kevin Garnett, playing himself, takes an interest in the rare black opal, Howard is sent down a rabbit hole of organized crime, sports gambling, and various disasters, some comic, some not, of one kind or another. This is a very high-energy movie that delivers a certain state of anxiety in watching it, so you really have to be in the mood for something like this. And while Adam Sandler may be one of the most famous people in the world, this is also a Safdie Brothers movie, which means Sandler is working with non-actors, some of them literally off of the street. So there's a sense of authenticity and rawness about Uncut Gems, now streaming on Netflix, that you won't see anywhere else in mainstream cinema. But if you're looking for something a little more traditional and a little bit more feel-good friendly to view, you might try The 100-Foot Journey. Now, there's comfort food and there are comfort movies, you might say. And since this is a Lassie Helster movie, you get a full helping of both. And guess what? It's all very comforting in which a family displaced from their native India moves to a lovely village in the south of France where they open up a restaurant called Maison Mumbai, across the street from a Michelin-starred French restaurant run by the intimidating Helen Mirren's Madame Mallory. The dialogue is all in English, but the movie touches on various issues, or plot devices, you might say such as the tensions between two cultures and how they can coexist peacefully. Or maybe the link between food and memories. But these things are given equal weight under Hallstrom's direction, which never gets too demanding or overly serious. Instead, everything is handled in a charmingly sentimental fashion. There's also a couple of family-friendly classics showing up this month, including the first two in the Back to the Future series of movies with Michael J. Fox. You know, the franchise that set the standard for time-traveling tales, which has inspired countless spin-offs, theme park rides, Halloween costumes, and even a musical. Not bad for a film that was rejected for years before it finally started shooting way back in 1984. The other family-friendly classic that I'm thinking of, uh, which is also returning to Netflix this month, is the original 1971 Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, which is always great fun to see again, if mostly for the late Gene Wilder's charmingly eccentric performance. And then there's something of a contemporary classic, but of a very different kind, with United 93. Uh, this was released five years after the 9-11 attacks. Um, United 93 recounts the events aboard United Airlines flight 93, with as much veracity as possible. It's not a documentary, it is a fictional film. And it begins as passengers board the San Francisco bound flight from Newark Liberty International Airport. And it tracks them throughout the plane's hijacking and eventual crash in Pennsylvania. Now, while this may not leave you with an entirely optimistic feeling, I think you'll be inspired by the heroism of the passengers on display. And I feel very strongly that this Paul Greengrass film, with its innovative use of handheld camera work and a documentary-like realism, remains a must-see retelling of this tragic event. So to sum up, there's the Michelle Obama documentary, Becoming, the Jerry Seinfeld stand-up comedy routine, 23 Hours to Kill, 
the exuberantly edgy Uncut Gems, the feel-good story of The 100-Foot Journey, the family-friendly classics Back to the Future 1 and 2 and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory from 1971, as well as the innovative documentary-like work of fictional drama United 93, all streaming on Netflix this month. Elsewhere, if you miss the biographical drama Judy, or just want to see again Rennie Zellweger's Oscar-winning star turn playing Judy Garland, you can see it on Amazon Prime and on Video On Demand. It's not really a movie about her entire life, though her character often looks back upon it, but rather a particular episode set in 1968 in which the much-beloved but troubled actress and singer arrives in London to perform sold-out shows at a very swanky nightclub. While there, she reminisces with friends and fans and begins a whirlwind romance with a much younger man. Now, this is about Judy Garland, so it's a sad story at times, but not without an uplifting ending of a kind, in which Garland's art seemingly transcends the pain of her life, and certainly the incandescent performance from Zellweger, around which everything is centered, makes for more than a worthwhile viewing. For some slightly edgier material, also on Amazon Prime and on Video On Demand, is Hustlers with Jennifer Lopez, in what is almost certainly her very best performance, heading up an all-star cast in this popular, critically acclaimed crime drama. This is based on a true story from about 20 years ago, about a team of Manhattan strippers who band together to scam several of the Wall Street businessmen that they lure into their strip club. But despite the subject matter, it's really a kind of underdog, deeply humane, female friendship movie of a kind with exceptional performances from everyone involved and an energetic pace that carries you briskly along to its impeccably plotted conclusion. And Hustlers is crammed with killer lines, so it's also frequently laugh-out-loud funny. Not to be missed, that's Hustlers on both Amazon Prime and Video On Demand. Okay, let's turn to the rather more traditional cable television channels and see what's going on there this week. On Tuesday, May 12th at 8 p.m., ABC TV is paying a special two-hour tribute to Hollywood legend Gary Marshall, the creative force behind such iconic TV series as Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, and Mork and Mindy, as well as such very popular movies as Beaches, Pretty Woman, and The Princess Diaries. The special is entitled The Happy Days of Gary Marshall, and it's sure to be a fun, nostalgic trip back in time. With many stars like Julia Roberts, Richard Gere, Julie Andrews, Jennifer Garner, Ron Howard, Henry Winkler, Anne Hathaway, and Barbara Hershey, all sharing their favorite memories of working with Gary Marshall. Marshall famously once said, I never wanted to change the world. I wanted to entertain the world. And for more than six decades, his work in television and films made us laugh, touched our hearts, and always left us feeling good. This very special celebration sounds exactly like the kind of show we need right now. That's The Happy Days of Gary Marshall on ABC TV, Tuesday, May 12th at 8 p.m. Now, if you like PBS-style nature documentary series, I highly recommend Spy in the Wild on Wednesday, May 13th at 8 p.m. This week's episode, entitled The Islands, is a gorgeous one-hour trip to the magnificent islands of the South Pacific, where you'll see such creatures as the koala and the Komodo dragon, and much, much more. That's Spy in the Wild on Wednesday, May 13th at 8 p.m. on PBS, which is followed by an episode of Nova at 9 p.m. called Decoding COVID-19, in which we see doctors strategize to stop the spread of the disease and researchers work towards finding treatments and vaccines, as well as explaining to us how COVID-19 emerged, what it does to the human body, and how it has led 
to our current pandemic. Have you ever watched a homemade video and wondered to yourself, how do they have so much time on their hands? Well, now that nearly everyone is sheltering at home and social distancing, the internet is flooded with people posting their coronavirus shutdown antics. And CBS now has a special compilation of them on Friday, May 15th at 8 p.m. It's entitled The Greatest Stay-at-Home Videos. It's hosted by Cedric the Entertainer, and it will focus on the most heartwarming, humorous, and inspirational of filmed experiences during this otherwise unprecedented and difficult time. Hey, you know what? It wouldn't be a proper lockdown viewing episode without some recommendations of upcoming fare on Turner Classic Movies. On Saturday, May 9th, starting at 5.45 p.m., are two Kirk Douglas classics. First, from 1970, There Was a Crooked Man, followed by, from 1951, Ace in the Hole, the latter of which is especially noteworthy as Billy Wilder's equally trenchant follow-up to his better-known Sunset Boulevard from the year before, 1950. With Ace in the Hole, the late great actor, Kirk Douglas, gave one of his very best performances, and you really must see it, as a disgraced, unscrupulous newspaper reporter trying to get back to the big time in New York City. Absolutely must-see viewing. Then on Friday, May 15th, a week from today, is an entire day's selection of movies featuring the great, multifaceted, and debonair British actor, James Mason including such noteworthy titles as Julius Caesar from 1953, Lolita from 1962, Odd Man Out from 1947, A Star is Born with Judy Garland from 1954, and North by Northwest with Cary Grant from 1959. All of them absolute classics and playing all day on TCM, Turner Classic Movies, Friday, May 15th. And speaking of TCM, they've started a podcast entitled The Plot Thickens about the life of filmmaker, writer, and sometimes actor Peter Bogdanovich. In the early 1970s, Bogdanovich, best known for his movie The Last Picture Show, had quickly gone from excited young cineast to one of Hollywood's top directors. But he soon found himself a victim of jealousy, public scorn, and his own hubris, as well as a devastating crime. Now, in this seven-part series, hosted by TCM regular Ben Mankiewicz, Bogdanovich looks back on his life of fame, success, heartbreak, and failure, and through it all, an enduring love of movies. That's The Plot Thickens, a new podcast from Turner Classic Movies. Another must-listen podcast for fans of Hollywood history is Katrina Longworth's brilliant passion project, You Must Remember This. It's not affiliated with TCM, but is a long-running series that largely explores the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood. Longworth, a former critic for LA Weekly, writes, narrates, records, and edits each episode. It's a heavily researched work of what she calls creative nonfiction, in which Longworth navigates through often conflicting reports, mythology, and institutionalized spin to sort out what really happened behind certain movies, stars, and scandals in Hollywood history. That's the podcast. You must remember this, and trust me on this, it's frequently fascinating. Both podcasts can be found on iTunes or Spotify or anywhere else where you get podcasts. And just in case you don't know, a podcast is basically a radio show that is broadcast over the internet. Um, there is one last thing I'd like to talk about um, before I conclude this week's episode. And that's a little known, really lovely Japanese movie from 2015. And I would just like to leave you with this. Please watch it if you can.
It's entitled Sweet Bean, and you can find it on the library's Hoopla digital streaming service. The sweet bean of the title is a delicious red bean paste, which is the sweetheart of the Doriaki pancakes that a somewhat downcast middle-aged man named Santaro sells from his little bakery on the outskirts of a Japanese city to a small but loyal clientele. Into his life wanders an eccentric 76-year-old woman named Tokyu, who has responded to his ad for an assistant and cheerfully offers to work for a ridiculously low wage. At first, Santaro is skeptical, but when she shows up early one morning and reveals to him the secret of the perfect sweet bean paste, Santaro agrees to take her on. But it's best I don't reveal anything more than that. It's such a lovely film, very understated and poetic, and I urge you to give it a shot. That's Sweet Bean, streaming on the Cote St. Luke Public Library's Hoopla Digital Streaming Service. Anyway, that's all for now. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Lockdown Viewing and that you will join me next week for more recommendations of what to watch and where to watch it. This has been Stephen Tomlinson, your movie, TV, and streaming librarian. You might say remotely, but still a part of the Cote St. Luke Public Library. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at cotesaintluke.org, or failing that, by means of the library's Facebook page, or by calling the library at 514-485-6900. Once again, stay safe, be happy, and talk to you next time. Until then, bye-bye. Welcome to another episode of Book Talking with Your Librarians. My name is Jennifer Eisman, one of your Cosin Luke librarians and manager of digital learning and resource discovery. Today on my second episode, I wanted to share with you four titles that I've read. If you are looking for some interesting books to read, then hopefully today's broadcast will provide you with some inspiration. The following titles are not brand new or the most popular, but they're nonetheless worth picking up. The first book I would like to talk about today is I'll Be Your Blue Sky by Marissa de Los Santos. Marissa is the New York Times best-selling author of Love Walked In, Belong to Me, Falling Together, and The Precious One. In her latest novel, I'll Be Your Blue Sky, we see a few characters from the first two books, Love Walked In and Belong to Me. However, you do not need to read these books in order. I'll Be Your Blue Sky focuses on Claire Hobbs. It is the weekend of her wedding and she meets an elderly woman named Edith Heron. While they only have a few brief conversations, they provide Claire with the insight and courage she so badly needs to call off her wedding and return home. A few weeks later, Claire receives some sad and surprising news. Edith has passed away and left Claire a seaside guest home in Delaware. Desperately seeking a place to reevaluate her life, Claire moves to the Blue Sky House and there begins to learn more about Edith and the remarkable life she led. Claire feels a deep connection to Edith inside the walls of her new home, which are decorated with old photographs taken by Edith and her beloved husband, Joseph. In an effort to learn more about the woman who left her the house and as a way to distract her from her cancelled wedding, Claire begins to explore the guest home. While doing so, she discovers two ledgers, one depicting a list of the guests who stayed at Edith's home when it was a beach guest house, and another more shadowy ledger with mysterious notations. With the help of her former boyfriend, now best friend, Dev, Claire starts to unravel Edith's brave and fascinating past. She discovers a story of dark secrets, passionate love, heartbreaking sacrifice, and incredible courage. While Claire is doing all of this sleuthing, she starts thinking more and more about herself and her life. So there's this journey of self-discovery that is happening inside the book as well. The chapters alternate between Claire and the story of Edith. 
It is a very effective format to uncover characters' personalities on a deeper level. Edith's story mainly takes place in the 1940s and 1950s. She is a fascinating character in the book, one that captures your attention and you instantly want to know more about her. I found the book surprisingly suspenseful, with several unexpected twists and turns thrown in along the way. It is a bit lighter in terms of tone and storyline than I'm used to, but I think it would make a fantastic spring-summer read. This isn't a typical love story. Rather, it's a story about family love, romantic love, and the love and kindness of strangers. I'll Be Your Blue Sky is an emotional, evocative novel that probes the deepest parts of the human heart and illuminates the tender connections that bind our lives. It appeals to fans of Jojo Moyce, Ellen Hildebrand, and Nancy Thayer. This is women's fiction at its finest. The relationship the women possess in this novel was something truly special. And yes, there were some tears along the way as I read it. The second title today that I will be talking about is The Girls in the Picture by Be Melanie Benjamin. Benjamin is the author of the New York Times and USA Today best-selling historical novels, The Swans of Fifth Avenue, which is about Truman Capote and his society swans, and The Aviator's Wife, a novel about Anne Morrow Lindbergh and the national bestseller Alice I Have Been, which is about Alice Lindell, the inspiration for Alice in Wonderland. So as you can tell by these titles, the author specializes in historical fiction. In fact, she has said, as an armchair historian, I've always been drawn to stories from the past, stories that still resonate today, stories we may not know or remember, untold stories that explore the hidden corners, the locked closets behind the known historical record, deeply personal stories because history only comes alive when we remember that it was made by real people, people just like us. This is why I write novels about these people, because facts are for the historians, but emotions are the province of the novelist. The story of the girls in the picture captures all of this. As USA Today stated, it is a rich exploration of two Hollywood friends who shaped the movies, screenwriter Frances Marion and the superstar Mary Pickford. The story is set in 1914 and 25-year-old Frances Marion has left her life in Northern California for the lure of Los Angeles, where she's determined to live independently as an artist. But the word on everyone's lips is flickers, the silent moving picture that are enthralling theater goers everywhere. In this fledgling industry, Frances finds her true calling, writing stories for this wondrous new medium. She also makes the acquaintance of actress Mary Pickford, whose signature golden curls and lively spirit have earned her the title America's Sweetheart. The two ambitious young women hit it off instantly. Their friendship fomented by the, their mutual passion to create and to move audiences to a frenzy. However, their ambitions are challenged by both the men around them and the limitations imposed on their gender and their astronomical success could come at a price. As Mary, the world's highest paid and most beloved actress, struggles to live her life under the spotlight, she also wonders if it is possible to find love. Frances too longs to share her life with someone. As in any good Hollywood story, dramas will play out, personalities will clash, and even the deepest friendships may be shattered. With cameos from such notables as Charlie Chaplin, Louis B. Mayer, Rudolph Valentino, and Lillian Gish, The Girls in the Picture is at its heart a story of friendship and forgiveness. Melanie Benjamin perfectly captures the dawn of a glittering new era, its myths and its icons, its possibilities and potential, and its seduction and heartbreak. The story captures the exciting atmosphere of the movie industry with all of the glitz and parties, but it also gives the reader a look at the issues facing women in this industry. Although this is a piece of historical fiction, this topic is very timely given the recent Me Too movement and the case and subsequent sentencing of Harvey Weinstein, who incidentally is very reminiscent of some of the powerful men portrayed in this book.
The struggles Francis and Mary faced helped pave the way for women in that industry and will no doubt sound all too familiar to the reader as women continue to grapple with the same power imbalances, harassment, and the pressure to make concessions on the way, on the way to success. Anytime I read a work of fiction which is based upon real people, it always makes me wonder which details in the book were real and which were made up. It is an excellent way to capture the reader's interest and makes you want to know more about these individual characters. The author goes one step further and provides the reader with a few titles at the end of the book in order to learn more about these historical figures. It is evident that Melanie Benjamin did an enormous amount of research on Mary Pickford and Francis Marion, their families, lovers, husbands, and the movie industry itself. What was particularly appealing about this book was how the author devour, devoted alternating characters, alternating chapters to the main characters. By doing this, the author gives Francis and Mary the chance to tell their own story and share their viewpoints with the readers. I think if she hadn't done this, the book would have been very flat and bland. For example, Mary Pickford is portrayed as a sad stereotype figure, one whose fans refuse to allow her to grow up. However, with the personalized chapters, Mary Pickford is given a voice and we begin to see a woman with many layers. This book is an excellent exploration of the friendship of strong women, admiration, respect, mutual dependency, jealousy, insecurity. It's all there. The third book on my list today is Paris by the Book by Liam Callahan. This is the story of Leigh and Robert Eady who met outside a bookstore. Leigh is a former film student whose favorite film was The Red Balloon by Albert Lamoris. And Robert is a struggling author who loves the Madeleine books by Ludwig Bemalmans, which is a series of children's books. Both the film The Red Balloon and the Madeleine's children's books are set in Paris and Leigh and Robert's ultimate dream was always to go to Paris one day. But there was never enough money and certainly not years later after they married and have two children. However, one day Robert just ups and disappears, leaving behind his wife and their two daughters and hidden in an unexpected spot, a curious clue, which turns out to be plane tickets to Paris. Hoping to uncover more clues and her husband, Leigh sets off for France with her girls. Upon their arrival, she discovers an unfinished manuscript, one Robert has been writing without her knowledge and that he had set in Paris. The Edie women follow the path of the manuscript to a small floundering English language bookstore whose owner is eager to sell. A missing person, a grieving family, a curious clue, a half finished manuscript set in Paris, rescuing a failing bookstore and drawing closer to unexpected truths. What more can one ask for in a story? As the family settles into their new Parisian life, they hope more clues will arise. But a series of startling discoveries forces Leigh to consider that she may not be ready to solve this mystery and what it may do to her family and the Paris she thought she knew. Lee's character is well-developed and you may easily understand her struggle for not knowing if her husband is alive or dead. The mystery of Robert's disappearance definitely propels the narrative. Parts of the story are brilliant and fun, while others meander a bit. Leigh's thoughts frequently wonder, pondering the past, struggling with the present, and worrying about the future. But who can blame her given the situation that she finds herself in? At once haunting and charming, if at times a bit slow, Paris by the Book follows one woman's journey as her story is being rewritten, exploring the power of family and the magic that hides within pages of a book. This is a novel about coping with loss and taking a leap of faith by following a dream. The setting of Paris, France is both romantic and haunting, the descriptions both beautiful and ugly. The author does a beautiful and wonderful job of painting the scene with his words, that it really felt as if I had been transported to a little bookshop in Paris and indeed every other location that was mentioned in the book. The last title on my list today is a debut novel called The Italian Party by Christina Lynch. A delicious and sharply funny page turner about innocent Americans abroad in 1950s Siena, Italy. 
Scotty and Michael are newly married. Both of them came to the marriage with many secrets and for different reasons. Michael works for Ford selling tractors to the Italian farmers, but he has a hidden agenda. He wants to bring the American capitalistic ways to Italy and fight communism. Scotty is a girl that got herself into trouble and the only way she sees out is by marrying somebody and becoming the perfect wife. So what happens when two people that hardly know each other move to a country where they don't know anybody? When Scotty's Italian teacher, a teenager with secrets of his own, disappears in Siena, her search for him leads her to discover other darker truths about herself, her husband, and her new country. Michael's dedication to saving the world from communism crumbles as he begins to see that he is a pawn in a much different game. Driven apart by lies, Michael and Scotty must find their way through a maze of history, memory, hate, and love to a new kind of complicated reality. Half glamorous fun, half an examination of America's role in the world, and filled with sun-dappled pasta lunches, charming spies, and horse racing, the Italian party is a smart pleasure. The book was a real page-turner. I kept asking myself, how were Michael and Scotty going to work things out? How and why were secrets going to be revealed? How were people going to react? The way the Italian political culture at the time was portrayed by the author was also very interesting and not the least bit dry. Referred to by one online reviewer as a fancy dessert. It's lovely to look at, but you aren't sure if there will be any substance beneath the decorative frills. But when you dig in, you realize there's more to it than meets the eye. The characters are flawed yet fascinating, and the author did a fantastic job with imagery and details. I strongly recommend the Italian party to fans of historical fiction or anybody who loves a good story. That's it for today's book talking session. I hope you enjoyed learning about some of these titles. They are available online in our digital resource called Overdrive. Stay healthy, stay safe, happy reading, and until next time, this has been your librarian, Jennifer Eisman. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another musical moment. My name is Farah Mohammed, and my theme today is Mother's Day. Of course, it goes without saying. Mother's Day, which is coming up this Sunday, is usually synonymous with spring, flowers, cards, or treating mother to breakfast in bed, or having a lovely Mother's Day brunch. However, since it's harder to gather in person this year, those cards and telephone calls will matter more than ever. Social isolation and physical distancing can make it tempting to postpone or skip celebrating annual holidays such as Mother's Day. But celebrating even the smallest of things at home may be more important now more than ever. In fact, research shows that people who nurture daily celebratory and gratitude habits have more energy, less anxiety, and better physical health. So let's get started. Before we get to listen to some beautiful music, I wanted to say a few words about the origins of Mother's Day. Now, of course, honoring the mother of the family, as well as motherhood, maternal bonds, and the influence of mothers in society are not new. There have been many traditional celebrations of mothers and motherhood that have existed throughout the world over thousands of years, such as the Greek cult out to Cybele, an Anatolian mother goddess, or Rhea, who was the Magna Mater, or Great Mother of the Gods. Gaia was Earth Mother, and of course, the Harvest Mother Goddess, Demeter. There was also the Roman festival of Hilaria, or the Christian Mothering Sunday celebration, originally a commemoration of Mother Church, not motherhood. Mother's Day, as we know it, began in the United States at the initiative of Anna Jarvis in the early 20th century. Though Anna Jarvis herself never married and never had children, she is also known as the Mother of Mother's Day, 
an apt title for a lady who worked hard to bestow honor on all mothers. Anna Jarvis got the inspiration of celebrating Mother's Day from her own mother. Mrs. Jarvis was an activist and social worker, and she used to express her desire to Anna that someday someone must honor all mothers living and dead and pay tribute to the contributions made by them. As a loving daughter, Anna never forgot her mother's words, and when her mother died in 1905, she resolved to fulfill her mother's desire of having a Mother's Day. Anna, along with her supporters, wrote letters to people in positions of power, lobbying for the official declaration of the holiday Mother's Day. Their hard work paid off. By 1911, Mother's Day was celebrated in almost every state in the Union, and on May 8, 1914, President Woodrow Wilson signed a joint resolution designating the second Sunday in May as Mother's Day. So in honor of Mother's Day, I thought that it would be fitting to play pieces that somehow relate to mother and motherhood. For my first selection, here is a song from a collection of songs called Songs My Mother Taught Me, composed by Antonin Dvorak, in 1888. It is the fourth of seven songs from his cycle, Gypsy Songs. Slightly melancholic in nature, the text to this beautiful song is as follows. Songs my mother taught me in the days long vanished, seldom from her eyelids were the teardrops banished. Now I teach my children each melodious measure Oft the tears are flowing, oft they flow from my memory's treasure.
here's a nostalgic number sung by Elvis Presley called Mama Liked the Roses. It was a well-known fact that Elvis was extraordinarily close to his mother Gladys and that he had said in one article, she was the number one girl in his life and he was dedicating his career to her. Gladys was not able to have any more children due to health issues, so she devoted all her love to her only child, Elvis. The mother and son were very close. In one of his interviews, the singer recalled his night talks with his mother when he told her about his worries, no matter the time, day or night. Here are a few heartfelt verses. When I hear the Sunday bells ringing in the morning, I remember crying when she used to sing. Oh, Mama liked the roses, but most of all, she cared about the way we learned to live and if we said our prayers. So here it is the lovely tribute to a mother from an adoring son as it recaptures the things that she had taught and loved that would forever be remembered. Mama liked the roses She'd grow them in the yard But winter always came around And made the growing way too hard Oh, Mama liked the roses And when she had the time She'd decorate the living room For all us kids to see When I hear the Sunday bells Ringing in the morning I remember crying When she used to sing Oh, Mama liked the roses But most of all she cared About the way we learned to live And if we said our prayers You know, I kept the family Bible she saved inside it's pressed between the pages like it found a place to hide oh mama like the roses in such a special way we bring them every mother's day and put them on her grave Mama like the roses Mama like the roses Oh mama like the roses Here's one for all the grandmothers listening today this is Grandmother's Minuet by Edvard Grieg. This is from a collection called Lyric Pieces, a collection of 66 short pieces for solo piano. They were published in 10 volumes from 1867 to 1901. Descriptive in nature, these pieces have charming titles like To Spring, March of the Trolls, and Butterfly. This piece, Grandmother's Waltz, is stately, yet light-hearted. It's unclear whether it was written for Grieg's own grandmother, but we love it anyway. Thank you. 
My next selection is a classic upbeat number, Mama Said, performed by the American R&B girl group, The Shirelles. Also known for their doo-wop and soul music, The Shirelles gained wide popularity in the 1960s, and their song, Mama Said, became a top 10 hit on both the pop and R&B charts when it was released as a single in 1961. Mama said there'll be days like this, there'll be days like this, Mama said. Mama said, Mama said. Mama said there'll be days like this, there'll be days like this, my Mama said. Mama said, Mama said. I went walking the other day, remiss if I didn't mention a lullaby, especially when honoring mothers today. Who better would sing a lullaby than a mother to her baby? A lullaby is a soothing piece of music that is usually sung to a child. Perhaps one of the most important uses of a lullaby is as a sleep aid for infants. Singer or not, nothing brings more comfort to a child than to hear its mother's voice. One very famous lullaby is the one by Johannes Brahms. First published in 1868, this lullaby, or cradle song, was dedicated to Brahms's friend Bertha Faber on the occasion of the birth of her second son. This is most definitely one of the composer's more famous songs. Originally a song for voice and piano, I found this beautiful arrangement for solo piano instead. So here it is, Lullaby, Opus 49, Number 4, by Johannes Brahms.
For my final selection, I'd like to play a song called Sodad, sung by the extraordinary voice of Cesaria Evora. This is a Cap Verdean slow coladiera song written in the 1950s by Armando Zeferino Suarez. Saudad is a deep emotional state of nostalgia and profound melancholic longing for an absent someone that one cares for and or loves while simultaneously having positive emotions towards the future. It is the recollection of feelings, experiences, places or events that once brought excitement, pleasure and well-being, which now triggers the senses and makes one experience the pain of separation from those joyous sensations. Saudad describes both happy and sad at the same time, which is most closely translated to the English phrase bittersweet. So to commemorate the bittersweetness of this Mother's Day, whether we are separated from our mothers temporarily or whether our mothers have passed on to a better place, there is always the joy and comfort of knowing that we will be reunited once again someday.
saudade Saudade desse minha terra sem claro Saudade 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 desse minha terra sem claro Saudade 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 desse minha terra I hope you've enjoyed today's musical moment. In a world of uncertainty and isolation, celebrating all things, both big and small, are ever more meaningful nowadays. From milestone moments like birthdays and anniversaries to smaller things like an everyday achievement, we should be celebrating all of it. Finding daily moments of delight and celebrating them will help carry us through these dark days. Here's wishing all mothers a very happy Mother's Day. Take good care and bye for now. Well, that is today's episode of the Cote St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service. If you're listening at 2 p.m. on our phone line, we have another special item for you. Have a great day.